Haul the roll and go. Where am I to go, meet Johnny? Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Today, we are at the Museum of the Mountain Man in Pinedale, Wyoming, on Where Am I To Go podcast. And we are here with Clint, who's the curator and going to be taking us through here. And we're also with Linda, my traveling companion, and, and you will probably hear her asking a few questions in amongst things. But it's really good to be here today, Clint. I'm glad you've taken the time out of your day to meet with us and, and show us your museum. Well, it's great to have you here. I just wanted to say I'm the director of the museum. Not the curator. Not the curator? Oh, well, just I'm here with the director. Detail. <laughs> Is the director above or below the curator? It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're here with the director. And we're going to be going through this fine museum. I've taken a quick walk through. There is so much here to see. This is, this is really a cool place. But before we do, Pinedale is kind of uh, isolated, I guess you could say. It's not really on main roads. You hit it between Rock Springs and Jackson Hole. Uh, you can turn off and go over South Pass uh, to head that way through the state, or you can go up through Afton and hit uh, Yellowstone. But if you are go Pinedale is a destination point. Is, is the point I'm trying to make. Jackson Hole has all the notoriety. Pinedale, in my mind, is so much better than Jackson in so many ways. You don't have all the tourist stuff. It's a small town feel, but you have all of the outdoor activities, tons of history here, tons to see. Scenery is, is unbelievable, and you don't have quite the same amount of tourist traffic and, and that kind of influx. Yeah, I think that's that's correct. I um, we're not really on the way to anywhere. We're kind of out on our own, and um, but people, this is definitely a destination for uh, the Wind River Mountains for people that are hiking and for dude ranches and for snowmobiling and a uh, lot of outdoor activities. The the community as a destination place. And, and you like you said, you sit right at the base of the Wind River Range. Correct. Uh, Lots of hiking. You've got, what, a 1,000 lakes in a 50-mile radius? I mean, tons of fishing. You've got lots of access to things. BLM land for just going out and tooling out here on the Mesa. Yeah, 80% of the county would take two or three months to get to St. Louis each, each way. And so they decided to bring a supply caravan once a year. We come up here in July, meet the mountain men. All the mountain men from all, all around the region would gather in one spot and they would trade their furs from the previous year for supplies for the next year. So that's the ra that's the reason for the run. The very first one was only one day because that's all it took to do that transfer. But the next year they brought alcohol and then it just evolved from there and it turned into a big party. In the middle of summer is when beaver are not the best fur. Uh, they, they would still trap in the summer if they come across to beaver, but that really wasn't, they wanted to be trapping in the winter. And so they'd take the summer and, and take it off and meet at rendezvous, and it'd last a month to six weeks by the time some of those last ones, and it was just a big party. It was an excuse to get together and be with your friends and just have a great time. There were thousands of people at these rendezvous, still probably some of the biggest gatherings ever that have happened. In there. There's only 10,000 people in the county right now and 2,000 people in Pinedale. Those rendezvous would have four or 500 mountain men and then two or 3,000 Indians. And so it was a huge gathering. And Great big multicultural gathering. It was a multicultural <laughs> gathering. Even the mountain men themselves were multicultural, you know, 
with Spanish and, and French and American and Scottish and um, uh, different Indian tribes from the east, so like the Iroquois Indians. There were some of those out here, the Delaware Indians. Uh, so this was a very uh, multicultural, international uh, area at that time and event. Cool. And when was the last one held? 1840. 1840. And so they're still pushing 10 years before the immigrants started coming across on the Oregon Trail for the gold rush. And Yeah, the first, the first, what's considered the first immigrant train was in 1843. And it was led by mountain men. So uh, all the trails, the mountain men followed Indian trails is what really happened. That's how they got out here. But then they got to know them all. And then they ended up establishing the trails that the immigrants came through and so a lot of the mountain man ended up being immigrant guides and, and so and ford owners <laughs> yeah. yeah and ford owners like like jim bridger yep uh had a ford or two i know that that he had fort bridger but... yeah, mainly fort bridger uh, mm-hmm. and he built that right at the right time he built it in 1843 that same first year that the immigrants were starting to come through and that's that's why that became such an important fort is is supplying the immigrants cool well, let's start going through the museum here okay. and uh, taking a look at some of the displays. And Let's start over here. Actually, I'm going to start you right here just because this is cool. This that is, is a, cool. This is our buffalo hide teepee. It's a 20-foot buffalo hide teepee made out of 20 different buffalo hides. Um, it's an exact replica of one that's in the Smithsonian. Probably uh, the, the one in the Smithsonian was... Um, uh, was acquired was was captured during the battle of slim buttes um in the in 1876 this is shortly after the custer's battle um and the and it was taken back to the smithsonian it's been there ever since it's in it's so fragile that they can't bring it out and display it but we have a historian consultant that works with us by the name of michael badhand he was able to go and firsthand examine that measured every single hide even measured stitch counts Majored the patches, everything wow. on them, and made an exact replica of it. And so that's what we have here. This is later than the Mountain Man period. This is 1876. Uh, but, th- but this is very much what the teepees would have looked like uh, for the Plains Indians when the Mountain Men were here. Mountain Men would have been very familiar with this. This at the time, by the time this was built, canvas was really prevalent out here. And, and most of the tribes would have been building canvas teepees. Um, this was, was considered a, a warrior, this was a warrior society teepee, so it was kind of a special teepee, so it wasn't one that they lived in, it was kind of a clubhouse for the warriors, and so they think that's why it was built out of Buffalo so late, is because that was the traditional way of building it, and the liner inside, which has, uh, war graffiti on it, uh, war exploits on it, uh, that's 10 extra hides, so there's 30 total hides here, wow. they're all Buffalo, uh, they're all brain tanned, uh, by hand and all stitched together with sinew built exactly like it would have been built back in those days. That's awesome. And just to bring up a point here that you just brought up, brain tanning is where they actually use parts of the animal being the brain. I've heard the spleen and, and different parts in order to make the leather soft, supple and basically weather resistant. If you don't use anything like that, you've just got what they call rawhide and the rawhide with stretch when it's wet and then constrict when it's dry and they used a lot of the rawhide like for their hammers and uh wagon wheel wrappings as we're going to see here this is this part here just intrigues the heck out (laughs) of me we'll get to that later but uh 
a lot of things utilitarian, knife yeah, handles can, and that kind of you stuff. You can see some paraflesh para uh, bags right in the back that are standing up in the back. That is rawhide, and it's very hard. It's like cardboard. Right. And and so, yeah, they needed the brain tan. Or they needed the, the, the chemicals in the brain created a... Uh, a solution that when they worked it into the hide, it softened it and it made it re repel water and 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 so that's yeah that that's how originally it was done and some people still do it today just because they want to do that tradition. I've got way. a good friend that does brain tanning and and the brain tanned hides he does deer and elk uh, is as soft as any cotton. It, I mean, it, it is soft, it's pliable, impressive. and very very nice. Yep. It's not like the normal tanned hide that's chemically tanned. Uh, I know people that do that too, that, you know, is, is supple and, and movable, but the brain tanning is a whole different game and, and it's pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a lot of work. A lot of, well, <laughs> any kind of tanning is a lot of work. By the yeah. time you flesh it and dehair it, uh, you don't have to dehair. A lot of people will be familiar with hides that, that have the hair still on the backside and are soft, supple and, and move around, but this teepee does not have the hair on it. it. It was a chore to get the hair off of that yep. before they tanned it. Yep, a lot of work. I don't know if you want to talk about this Sioux War, war shirt. Oh, yeah. This is from 1823. Wow. This is a replica. The original's in a, in a museum in Germany, in Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, we discovered it a couple years ago. It had been known. Of course, it's been there for almost 200 years. Um, and it had been known, but there really hadn't been a connection to the fur trade made with it. And so this is a Sioux war shirt. You can see on it the keel boats on the side. You can see the Arikara village on the other side. You can see a battle in the middle. So we think this represents the Arikara battle of 1823. And some of the, I, you've probably heard of Hugh Glass. We got a display over oh, yeah. here of Hugh Glass. He was at this battle. He was wounded in this battle. Uh, this battle is really what convinced William Ashley, who was trying to go to the upper Missouri and get furs at the time. It really convinced him that that's not the, where, where, the, where they were going to make their money because it was just they lost so much going up the river. And so they came across country, and that was the group that ended here in 1824, mm -hmm. found the beaver here and started the rendezvous era. So we, you know, this battle is very important to the history of the rendezvous era. It kind of helped start it. So that's, we, we thought this was such a cool shirt when we found it that we just had to have one on display here. Uh, and of course, the original is just invaluable. Oh, yeah. And it's in Germany. It's in Germany. <laughs> yeah, thank you. a strange place to thanks. have a piece of Wyoming we, history. We have to thank the Germans a lot because they came over here in the 1830s and 40s, a lot of them, and toured, and they loved this these Plains Indian materials, and they collected them, and they took them back, and now they're in museums there, so... Some of the best stuff is in Germany, unfortunately. Really? Or fortunately. I, I guess at least it's preserved. Yes, never preserved. would have realized that. And yeah. now Hugh Glass that you mentioned, he was the subject of the movie The Revenant. Correct. Uh, there's a lot of controversy as to how accurate the movie really was. But there was a bear attack. He did survive. And, yeah, you the, know, the, 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 those parts of the movie are actually correct. But Yeah, the core of the movie is correct. And uh, we actually, we knew the movie was happening before it did because they called us for, for a consultant, for a historical consultant. And, one, and we, Clay Landry, who is one who is a consultant for us, um, we got him in touch with the producers and he ended up being a consultant for the whole movie. And they listened to him really well when it came to the material culture. So the way the guys dressed, the, material, the, the guns they had, the, the way the fort looked. All of that stuff, they didn't spare any expense getting that correct. The problem is, is they just destroyed the story. <laughs> and, and, and the stories 
pretty dang good without story having to is, destroy it. It's, it's, a, it's an awesome story. It's a great story. <laughs> that, that core story of him being attacked by a grizzly, almost dying, being left by his compatriots to, because they thought he was pretty much dead, and then ended up surviving and 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 making it 200 miles uh, to the to a fort uh, and surviving, and then actually going after a revenge mission to try to find these two guys that left him. Uh, that that is all true, uh, but the whole part about the son and the Indian wife, there's no nothing to that story. And and once he found the men, he didn't kill them. One was potentially George Jim Bridger, but we don't know that for sure. The young one. I was going to say I've heard that Jim Bridger was there, and, and him and Jim Bridger made up, or it or could at least, be at the, least buried the hatchet without it being in Jim Bridger's. If thing. if the young guy was Jim Bridger, um, he caught him up on the Yellowstone River, ran into him up on the Yellowstone River, and he was so young that he kind of forgive him for leaving him. He blamed the older man who had left him, this Fitzgerald. And so he eventually caught up with Fitzgerald at Fort Atkinson. But Fitzgerald had joined the military, and the military said, you're not killing one of our guys. But they got his gun back. And I was going to say, him. the only reason that he was thoroughly pissed at, at Fitzpatrick, from what I understand, besides leaving him behind for dead, was he stole his gun yeah. and left gun, him totally knife, unarmed. Yeah. You know, I, he left him naked in the wilderness, basically. Yeah, yeah that's, it. that's about what happened. So. so that story, it's a fascinating story. It's one of the best stories of the of the of the mountain man era um and i i think they could have been a great story just sticking to the story but they they had to make it more exciting i guess so but we're happy with the movie because it millions of people were introduced to this new subject and so it gave us an opportunity to tell the real story right so. that's true yeah. yep and and it was a good movie yeah, yeah, entertaining. I, I did watch it. It was a good movie. I, I shook my head a couple different times, but this still was a good movie. Okay, um, this shows some of the clothes and accoutrements of the mountain man. Um, the, the these these guys when they came up here um, are bringing an American European culture up here into this what's a Plains Indian culture, two completely different cultures. But they very much needed the Plains Indians. They needed to trade with them. They learned how to live up here. So they adopted a lot of the lifestyle from the Indian tribes that were up here. And even married in, many of them married into the tribes. And um, so their clothes tended to be this mixture of, you know, they did have cotton and shirts and, and they and they wore those up here. But boy, you ride through a willow patch with a cotton shirt and you pretty quickly don't have a shirt anymore. And so they learned that. And so even though they would bring some of that uh, American culture up here, they ended up having to adopt the leather culture a lot too because they needed to cover up. So it, it was a real mixture and, and it created kind of a unique individual. It created this guy we call a mountain man that that is in part of both worlds and represents part of both worlds. They were so unique that when they would go back to St. Louis or somewhere, civilization, even though St. Louis wasn't even civilization at that time, but it was the closest thing around. But they would go there, I think... Um, uh, a guy by the name of Kurtz in 1850 wrote about Mountain Man, and he said if they walked down the middle of the street in the city, they would be looked as as if they were a bear. They just stood out, and and so it was just this unique culture that that was created, cross culture that was created between the Plains Indian and the Mountain Man. The other thing that that's a point here is how much they traveled back then. I mean, you know, now for us to get in the car and go two, three hundred miles. There's a lot of people that don't do it, but a lot of people do, and we don't think a whole lot of it. We can do that in a day. Yeah. These guys are traveling from Wyoming to St. Louis 
how many, I mean, that had to have taken three, four weeks of constant two to, travel. Two to three months. Two to three months. See yeah. how far off I am. Yeah. Of constant travel. That's moving your 15, 20 miles a day trying yeah. to get back there. And these guys did it on a fairly regular basis. Yep, they did. They were all over this country. They were exploring. They they really were the first real explorers of the West. Um, there were some of the famous ones like Lewis and Clark and Fremont and, and Long and some of those. But... Um, these guys were the ones that covered every inch of the territory and were constantly on the move. You can't go anywhere in these northern states and not hear about Jim Bridger. These were hand-forged traps, so there was no mass production of traps. It was blacksmiths with a hammer and a fire and, and building them. Um, they would be built in St. Louis, but they got a lot of them out of like New York and even Canada. Um, they, they, traps were not uncommon at the time. Uh, these mountain traps, though, for the beaver, they're, they're about a five-pound trap. Um, that you know the size mattered to to try to catch the beaver. Um, th these were all one of a kind since they were hand forged. They all looked a lot alike. You know, any particular blacksmith would build ones very similar. We got one back here from the 1820s. I'll show you when we get there. Um, built by Miles Standish, who was a uh, all the fur trade records show him supplying goods to Rocky Mountain Fur Company, American Fur Company, and so we. We know that's what they look like, although tra actual traps from that period are really hard to come by. They have disappeared, but, um, but we, we know from the fur trade records and who built them what they look like. So these are replicas right here, uh, and, but they are hand-forged traps. And most of the traps that they were using at the time were leg hold, or did they use a lot of snares? No, nope, all leg hold. Everything was leg hold. Yep. The whole intent was to try to capture the hind foot of the beaver, um, he would step in the trap and it would catch his leg. And then a beaver's natural reaction is to dive down deep in the water because that's where he feels safest. He'd get to the bottom of the pond and there was a chain hooked to it that was staked to the ground. And uh, he'd get to the bottom of the pond and then the trap was just heavy enough that he couldn't really come back up and it would eventually drown him. And then the mountain man would come along and grab the end of the chain and drag him out. So... That's how they captured them. And that didn't destroy the pellet at all either. Right. Like, like shooting them or something else might have. And be the beaver trade at the time was, was extremely important because they were using them for hats. and They were making high fashion hats, beaver top hats. You think of a Abraham Lincoln type hat. That's a beaver top hat. And they were, um, the, 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 the actual, if you look at the fur of a beaver, they got two different hairs on it. One's called guard hairs. It's kind of a tall, stiff hair. Underneath a really soft hair, and uh, and that down hair, they would. That's that's what the hats were made out of. That would be shaved off of the fur. It would be matted and felted together, sometimes with other materials, and then put into the shape of a of a of a tall hat or a top hat, as they called them at the time. But beaver wasn't the only thing these trappers, mountain men, were trapping. Is that correct? That's true. I mean, beaver was by far what they were after. If they came across otter or um, Martin or something Fox, like that, or... maybe, uh, but that's not really what they were after. Okay. Um, I mean, anything they could sell and make money for, they would, but there's not a lot of market a thousand miles away because you have to get the fur a thousand miles away too, to get it to a market that can use it. And, and so there's those transportation costs. And so you got to have a price tag on the end that makes it worthwhile. And beaver was really it. Um, otter potentially was, but, uh, Back to the traps again. Uh, they were kind of heavy. Yes. And so how many would they um, order to have 
carried into the wilderness? Each mountain man that was trapping would carry five or six traps and set all those, try to set all those in one night, then go back the next day and see what you caught. So that gets into the economics a little bit. At rendezvous, a mountain man could sell a beaver pelt for like five bucks. If you got five traps and you set them in one night and you get five beaver, that's 25 bucks. That's worth almost a month's wage back in those days, in one night. Traps, they would have those ordered and made. How much would that cost them? Would they, were they independently buying these or were they through a company of some sort? Uh, it was a mixture. There were some trappers who worked for a company and would be supplied their traps. The company would buy them. There were others that were free trappers, and they would trade with companies that would bring those traps out here for the purpose of selling them to the mountain man. Um, and then they would buy them themselves, essentially just on book money. So they would put five traps on the books against their account, and then when they brought the beaver back, they would get a credit. So how much would one of those costs him to have? That's a good question. I should have that on the top of my mind, and I don't right now. We have a sign over here when we get there. I believe it has it on it. Mountain men were carrying a bunch of weight when they were, I mean, they had their flintlock or their percussion rifle. They had their, uh, had to have all their clothes, and leather's not super light. They had these traps at at three to five pounds a piece, uh, and the chain and and other things to, to do the trapping. They, of course, they had their knife. They were carrying, what, probably 50 pounds of weight with them everywhere they went? Yeah, that's, well, and then you also got the beaver pelts. So when you trap a beaver, you got to pack the pelt back with you. Or, you know, they get to a point where they'd have like maybe 60, 80 pelts they'd put into a bale of 100 pounds. And sometimes they would cash those, bury them somewhere, and then come back and, and pick them up. But that's a little bit risky. You did that when you had to do it. They did that fairly frequent. But uh, when you got those pelts, you got to pack those around. So that each beaver pelt's probably a pound or maybe two pounds. Oh, if they're wet, yeah, they'd be at least that, um, I would think. And so it it was, yeah, they packed a lot of weight, and they did that by having horses and mules. Um, so every mountain man would, almost every mountain man would have a horse uh, to ride and usually a pack animal to pack all their, their goods. And did they have a hard time keeping those animals with the way that Indians and, and others wanted to wanted to get your animal from you. I mean, that was a valuable commodity back then. Very much. But the Plains Indians were very much a horse culture. So they had a lot of horses. So you could trade for horses. So it was not hard to find horses. It was easy to lose horses, but it was not hard to find them also. And you just had to have something to trade, something of value to trade for. So Was there a lot of thievery amongst uh, the Indians and the mountain men and, and that type of stuff? Um, or was your, was your product pretty safe? No, I mean, if you left anything alone, yeah. I mean, if you cashed goods in the ground and somebody comes across and finds it, they're probably going to take it. Now, there was there was a code of ethics, and, and it said don't take stuff, but the reality is some people would. Uh, there's nobody policing anything out here. Right, oh, yeah. And, and certainly the Indian tribes, you know, they, they, they would very much, well, every Indian tribe was different, and everyone treated that differently. And... Um, but there were some tribes that, you know, if, if you catch a mountain man out there by himself, he might just lose all his stuff. Or if you're not guarding your horses in the middle of the night, and they didn't look at that as stealing. That's they lived. In that a, was a communal. That was a communal. They lived in a warrior culture, and 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 they were constantly had their head on a swivel, sort of thing. And and that's the world they lived in. And if you if it's somebody who wasn't part of your tribe, it was a different tribe, or or these white guys that are out here. If they're stupid enough to leave their stuff where you can take it, then you take it. And it's considered like war capture, not 
not stealing. Now, within the Indian tribes, they didn't do that. They didn't steal from each other. You know, that's not a way you keep a community together. Right. So that was very much policed. So it's a complicated question. Yes, you could lose stuff out here to people didn't just find something laying on the ground and leave it. Uh, that anybody would take it out here. It so, was just about a matter of survival. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now we got a mountain man camp over here. Yeah, they they you, we talked about all the weight they packed, which was true, but they tried to stay fairly light. So they didn't pack teepees with them or anything. A, a typical bedroll would be a buffalo hide and a Hudson Bay blanket or a, a couple of them, and, and they'd throw it on the ground with a tarp over them, and, and that was, they were constantly on the move. You, you were going from stream to stream to stream to trap. Um, sometimes they would take the, the trouble to build a little lean-to like this to, to shelter them. Uh, it just depended on how long they planned on staying there. Uh, but they traveled very light, so their bedding was, was not very extensive. But a buffalo hide alone is, is 30, 40 pounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lot of weight. It's a lot of weight. Yeah. But the one cool thing that you have here that you don't get to see very often is the bull boat. Oh, yeah. And uh, basically what, what I'm looking at here is willow branches done up in a circle with a buffalo hide with the hair on, stretched over that willow frame, and then lash together with rawhide again that, that will shrink up and, and hold things tight. And they actually use these boats made out of buffalo hide for going down the river or getting across water. Correct. It was, it was a quick way to build transportation. There were a lot of buffalo up here during the mountain man era. Uh, when the hide's green, you can strap it along around this, wood, uh, this uh, willow frame. And then as it dries, it really tightens up. Uh, so it becomes, they build them as, you know, they could build buffalo hides big enough to carry 10 people, you know, to cross a river. There's a picture back here of Alfred Jacob Miller that I'll show you that shows that very thing. And they're sewing these hides together or they're, yep. or it's just, okay. Well, one this, hide makes a boat about this size. Yep. Here. This is a single hide boat. Okay. And this would be like to cross a river. Yeah. Um, and and it's big enough for maybe two people. I don't know what the, what the weight yeah. limit would be, but it's it's probably 14, 16 inches deep, and you'd have to kneel in it and, and boogie yep. across the, the lake. And sometimes they would use them to float down rivers. Um, that first year when they tried to take uh, furs down the Platte River, uh, Thomas Fitzpatrick built himself bow boats and tried to float the whole Platte River, but he got over there somewhere near Independence Rock and Split Rock and, and Devil's Gate, and somewhere there he got into some rapids and turned over and got all his furs wet. And he decided this isn't working. The, the Platte River is just not, it, it was that in combination with many places where there was, it was so shallow that he had to drag his boat. And he determined at that point, I'm not going to do this anymore. So he took all his furs out, dried them out, rebundled them, buried them and went on foot down to St. Louis and came back and got the furs. So cool. Yeah, you don't see the bull boats very often. I no. I know a guy that built one, and I've actually been able to sit in one and float it out in the river, and it was pretty stable, and kind of a neat a neat experience. Yeah, we had a bunch of kids down at the house. Uh, we kind of did little rendezvous things for the kids when they were growing up, and and a friend of ours built had the kids build the bull boat, and, and we went out and floated it. So it was fun. Yeah, it was a <clears throat> easy way to. To navigate water out here in the wild without having to carry a boat with you. Jim Bridger's gun. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, that's Jim Bridger's actual gun? That is an actual gun from Jim Bridger. 
This is one that uh, was built for him. If if on this side you can't see it, but on the other side, the eagle inlay that's on the butt has J. Bridger 1853 engraved on it. Wow. This was built by uh, or was was acquired for him by Louis Vesquez, who was his business partner that that built Fort Bridger together with him. We don't know the story of why Louis decided in 1853 to get a gun for Jim Bridger, but he did, and and now we have it here. So it's one of only two Jim Bridger original Jim Bridger guns that are that that can be documented. So and you've got a, a whole selection of guns that would have been used by the mountain men here. Yeah, they, I like to tell people these are these are primitive guns in a sense that they're flintlock or they're percussion cap. Uh, they're all muzzle loaded, so the the powder and the ball put down the muzzle, and there's no shells. So we think of these as primitive, but at the time of the Mountain Man, this was state-of-the-art. They, they were always using the latest, greatest thing when the percussion caps were created so they didn't have to use a flint. The, they immediately started trying to bring those to the mountains and use them. Now, they, they ended up having problems with them because once you're out of percussion caps, you can't fire anymore. Uh, the percussion caps, when they got moist, could be a problem. Uh, and so they weren't necessarily the best guns. So some went back to using flint or stayed using flint, but they tried everything, every, the, the latest technology they tried as soon as it came out. This was a big business that they were out here as part of. But we have a wide variety of flintlocks, percussion caps, uh, trade guns that would have been traded to the Indians, long rifles that would have been used by the mountain men. Uh, so we got a variety that show um, what they would have used. And let's go back to the percussion and the flintlock just real quick for people that might not understand the difference. The percussion cap came out after the flintlock. The flintlock was set up with a hammer that had a piece of flint in it that would strike a steel and create a spark. And then when it sparked, you had what they called the flash pan that was covered up by this piece of steel that the flint would strike. And the spark would ignite the flash pan the gunpowder in the flash pan, and it would go through a little hole into the firing chamber where you had more gunpowder and a wad and then your projectile. And so when you fired a flintlock, which I've done a few different times, it's a really interesting experience because you see this flash, and then it takes a little while for that spark to get inside the combustion chamber before it pushes the projectile out. So you see a flash, and then hear a bang, and there's, what, maybe a half-second delay? Yep. And so it's real easy when you're shooting a flintlock to pull the trigger, see the flash, and be halfway down before the actual gun fires. So it's, a, it's a, such a delayed reaction that you've got to squeeze the trigger and hold on your target for, you know, the count of three before you actually have the deer fall down. Yeah, and not only that, when that flash happened, it's, it's happening right in front of your face. So yeah. you've got this flash and explosion, and you've got to do exactly what you said, which is hold your gun and wait for that second second bang. And not only the flash, but you've also got the black powder, That's which great. creates a cloud. That's correct. They're, they're very fun to shoot. If you've never <laughs> had the opportunity to shoot a flintlock, take the opportunity. See if you can find somebody that's got one. Mountain man clubs all over the United States. Somebody would have one and it's it's kind of a fun experience but the next uh evolution in the firearm is the percussion cap and what that is is it's just like the little cap gun that you had when you were a kid that had the little red caps that you put on the the nozzle and it would strike and make the noise well the percussion caps you carried in your possibles bag which had everything else in it and you would put the cap on a little nipple 
And that would strike and then the spark would go down and ignite the powder and push the projectile out. And that was a lot more instantaneous. But like you said, you had the problems that, well, you have problems with both of them. Your flash yeah. pan, if you tipped your gun sideways on the flintlock, you could empty your your right. flash pan out and not have any powder to ignite the powder on the... That was the, the advantage mushroom. of the percussions is you didn't have that exposed flash pan. Right. You didn't have that first explosion. The, the cap itself did that first explosion and it was all inside the gun. So you didn't have that extra flash in your in your face and you could um, keep the hammer down until uh, to keep the cap on the nipple until right. you were ready to use it so you can but if you're it. in a hurry trying to put a little tiny cap uh, on a nipple <laughs> when you got somebody firing at you in a in a war type situation is probably very unnerving <laughs> i'm sure and same thing with the flintlock trying yeah. to pour that that flash powder down in the the little container yeah. before you it, it it was all a, a major chore and and firing these things fast was not you can maybe get what two, three rounds off in a minute if yeah. you were very yeah that that may be really very good. proficient and, and uh, they they were not easy to use yeah but they're a lot of fun to shoot you still get the big puff of smoke out oh, then yeah. because black powder ha- it's not smokeless powder so you have the big flash in the cloud and the smell of the gunpowder and and they're a blast to shoot so. Yeah, a lot of people do it now just for the fun of it because it is it is a lot of fun. It's a whole different experience. And then you've got uh, display over here of a trapper with a with an Indian with wife. an Indian wife and and the pack saddles and, and yeah, it's 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 hard to understate the importance of the Plains Indian to this era. Um, you've got a few hundred mountain men here in the mountains at any one time, and you've got tens of thousands of Native Americans up here. And so they very much work together. Or the, I guess this is one of the times in history of the West when the, the people who were coming in, the mountain men, needed the Indians, and the mountain men had something that the Indians could use from them, which is all the trade goods. And so it created a, a unique opportunity there for this cross-cultural mixing uh, that didn't really last. You know, A lot of the other gold rush and the, and the homesteaders and the railroads and each group didn't really need each other, and so it created a lot of conflict. And, and so this is a time where there was still a lot of conflict because the native tribes um, were warrior cultures. Um, but the mountain men tried to get into it and tried to be a part of their world, not try to take over their world. Um, and so the marrying into the Indian tribes uh, was very, very common. And, in, and from both sides, it had benefits. For the mountain men, it provided them not only the companionship, but it provided them an end to trading with that particular tribe. For the Indian women, it pro- provided them an opportunity, access to all these great trade goods. And uh, so we try to show that here, um, represent that here. And some of the other advantages too would be marrying an Indian woman would give you access to wintering grounds uh, because the Indians, the mountain men didn't, didn't winter up in the top of the mountain. They were down in Indian territory where the Indians were wintering and having a tough time too, but at least marrying into or having an Indian wife. And then you also had language barriers that uh, could possibly be overcome with with some of these situations. Uh, I would think that there'd be a lot of benefits to have. Yeah, the the mountain men, some mountain men, um, Edward Rose and Jim Beckworth, and some of those guys ended up living for years with the Indian tribes. Um, but certainly they wintered, a lot of mountain men wintered with the Indians. Um, uh, not all of them, but, but a lot of them did. But you're right, it was the same places that they were all trying to go to winter. So. Makes sense. 
They definitely had horses and mules. That was a, uh, a necessity out here in the mountains. And now we get to what I find to be maybe the most interesting piece here because I've never been exposed to it, never seen it. And this is just absolutely cool. He's got a, a wagon here. It's not really a wagon. It's more of, of it's two, almost like a hand cart. Two-wheel cart. It's a two-wheel cart. And it's got uh, rails on it that are about 20 feet long. It's long enough that you could put a horse in to pull from uh, the collar of the horse. And the horse would stand in between the two rails and pull the two-wheel cart. And the box on it is probably six by four. And it was set up for carrying the pelts, you were saying. Yeah, the main, main use of the carts was the supply caravans that came once a year from St. Louis up to the mountains. So they're bringing a lot of weight with them. And they're taking back a lot of weight, all the beaver pelts. The mountain men themselves, while they were in the mountains, didn't use carts like this. There was no need for that. A horse or a mule was better. But that supply caravan that was bringing up thousands of pounds, tens of thousands of pounds of goods, um, the, the cart became the preferred method to do that. Because it was light, didn't get stuck as easy and, and some of that. Yeah, they, they brought, uh, one year they brought wagons clear to the rendezvous. It was the one that was held over on the Wind River in 1830. Uh, they brought 10 wagons to that rendezvous, and they never did again. After that, it was always uh, mules or carts. And we don't, nobody wrote it down at the time, but I fully believe it's just because the, the, the wagons were not uh, very easy to maneuver here in the mountains where there were no roads. Once Fort Bridger was built in 1834, um, the plains of Nebraska and Kansas were pretty good for wagons. So they'd bring wagons clear to the fort, but then they would transfer over to carts and mules to bring the rest of the way into the mountains. And so it's a sort of a misconception of the mountain man era that they were bringing wagons all the way to rendezvous. And that's what I had always thought. That didn't really happen. (laughs) And And then they did something really interesting here. Most of your wagon wheels have a heavy metal band that is put around the spokes and the, and the outside wheel parts, and it holds everything together tight. This particular wagon, they've got rawhide. Buffalo hide. Rawhide buffalo hide stretched over and then lashed together with more rawhide. And you were saying that was because of the rocks and the stuff? It was, yeah, the reason they did it, well, first of all, rawhide does really good when it's wet and you put this on wet and then let it dry. It really puts a lot of pressure and and holds that wheel together. So it's very effective for that. Uh, But the real reason they did it is so that they could repair in the field. These are carts that are going to be a thousand miles away from a blacksmith or from repair. If you've got a metal tire that somehow breaks or comes off or uh, it's hard to repair and in the mountains. And so even though these, the rawhide would wear out quicker, it's, it's easier to replace. Just find you know, another buffalo, even probably clothes and stuff you have if you need to do an emergency. Also, the rest is all wood. The, the axles all wood. There's no metal in the axles. Uh, same reason. It just created a, a cart that no matter what happened in the mountains, you could fix. So that would have been the most common out here. You also connected it with the rawhide? The axle to the car? Um, I don't, yes, they rawhide straps are what they tied it together with, yes. They set the body of the of the wagon on the axle with yep. rawhide. That's really and this, and this shows a this shows a, a, a pack of, you know, 60 to 80 beaver, 100-pound pack is about what they packed those in. 
Um, and you said these carts would hold about 600 pounds. Yeah, five, 600 pounds, um, which is quite a bit of weight, but it's light enough that they're very maneuverable. Because there's only two wheels, you can spin them on a dime almost if you need to. Um, you can you go up and down goalies much easier with them. Um, they're light enough that you can usually, for a short distance, can float them across the river. So if you take them, pull them across the river there, with the 500 pounds, there's enough surface area there that they can hold that and float. Not forever, because they're not a boat. They're not right. built to float. But but you could get across the river with them without having to re-unpack everything. So they just ended up being a much better bulk transportation tool than, than anything else. The, the other primary one would just be mules. But a mule compact tour is a couple hundred pounds. Uh, these carts can pack 500 pounds with one mule pulling it. So right. um, they, they use a mixture of, of both. That's that's really that's really fascinating. I have not seen anything like that. That rawhide stretched over the wheel is is a whole new concept to me. <laughs> it just kind of boggles my mind. <laughs> and then you've got a pelt display over here. With- yeah, this shows the the traps. This is that Miles Standish trap that I told you about. That's a hand forged trap from eighteen twenty four, or from the eighteen twenties. And, and we have records of those exact traps at that time coming out here to the mountains. So um, that isn't one that was found here in the mountains, but we're pretty sure it represents what was here in the mountains. Yeah, you're going back to a time where things were left behind. They and, were. And rotted out. And, and they were somewhat made to be disposable. Not disposable, but, I mean, they were made to be used and thrown away. Right. Which we ought to be familiar with in this society. <laughs> yeah. This shows some of the trade goods. Um, the the thing I like to point out with our trade good display is a lot of this is stuff mountain men needed, like lead and razors and tobacco and pipes. And but when you look at things like beads and bells and some of the cloths, and that's all for trade with the Indians. That's what the Indians wanted. And that was a major part of the business model out here was was to bring supplies and trade with the Indians. And if you think prices were high, are high now for things that you're getting, imagine paying. Uh, back then, $150 for a rifle gun. That'd be equivalent to what? Probably... 30 beaver pelts. Okay, 30 beaver at pelts. Time. But at this point in time, $150 from 1830s got to be close to $1,500, I would guess. Yeah, that's hard to judge. I, I like to compare wages So, I, I, uh, because what it took to live back then. And, and a typical laborer in America at that time was making less than a dollar a day or $30 a month. So what does somebody make now in a month? Maybe two or three thousand dollars a month. Right. So you know you're a hundred times difference in in value. So, so that, that kind of gives was, you that gun was expensive, uh, real expensive. Yeah. And then uh, do they have nails or any of that stuff? I, I've seen different prices of of nails that were just outrageous. Or yeah, and and these and you got to realize these are mountain prices. So. It cost right. a lot of money to bring something a thousand miles from St. Louis, especially if it was a heavy, like a trap or a gun. So this is not the price somebody would have paid in St. Louis. This is what we call rendezvous or mountain prices. So uh, you had asked earlier about the beaver trap. So we're showing an 1832 rendezvous. You could buy a beaver trap for 60 bucks. It's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. You, you can uh, buy these traps now for 20 bucks. I'm not sure how much they are I think now. I priced some last year, and they were 20 25 bucks for a leg of okay. trap. You know, and, and they were $60 back then. And, and yeah. look at the way that the prices have changed in that period of time. Yeah. yeah. So the alcohol, the liquor is quite expensive. 
You have to really want it. Well, and what they did with liquor too is they would bring up they would bring up barrels of that liquor and then they would cut it. They would mix it with water, so they have actually even made more money from. I think liquor was a very big money maker, just like it is now. Right. right. It's it's always been a very big money maker. And it was what sixteen dollars a gallon. Yeah. Down right here at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Wow. It's fun to see these charts and and how much the mountain man had to pay for just to survive. Yeah. And and keep his trade going. Yep. But they but they you know five dollars a beaver pelt you know in in you can make a week's worth of wages in one night or with one beaver. Right. Um, and so they had access. We've we've got some fur trade letters up here in the front. That you, there's some of the original handwritten letters from that time period. And one of them is an IOU for this trapper by the name of Johnson Gardner. And it's one of the fur trade companies, Smith, Jackson, and Sublette, sold out to the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. And in the process, they had money on the books that they owed people. So they wrote IOUs and said, we owe you this. And so we have that from Johnson Gardner. It's fifteen hundred bucks is what they owed him. So that shows how much money he was able to acquire over about a four-year period, wow. four to five-year period. So the problem is, is, is like any young guys, and these are all young guys in their twenties and maybe thirties. Uh, you don't think of saving money; you just spend it. <laughs> right, right. And, and so I think when they got to rendezvous, they spent a whole lot of money they didn't need to. If they had kept it, they could have probably got a nice nest egg for themselves, but uh, I think most of them just spent it. Well, and what was there to buy out here, really? I mean, Whatever you had to buy your tools trade, of the yes. trade, yep. and other than that, yep. you, you were probably looking for for a rendezvous party to... Re- well, you know, and just- they bought a lot of stuff. A lot of mountain men bought beads because that could get you a lot in an Indian tribe. You know, you go into an Indian village and you want a horse. I don't know how many beads it took to trade for a horse. It's probably a lot, but that's the kind of stuff, metal pots and beads and bells and those kind of things are things that the Indians couldn't get themselves naturally. So they very much wanted them. And so you see a lot of mountain men buying supplies with their extra cash that they could later trade for clothes or horses or that most of these guys probably didn't make their leather clothes. They, they hired it right. done or they, they bought it from, from, from an Indian tribe and um, just because they could. We do show blacksmithing tools. Um, this is not something that would have been real prominent for the everyday of a life of a mountain man because blacksmithing tools are heavy. And to create a forge or have carry a bellows with you or anything like that takes a lot of work. But when when forts were created, so when, when Fort, like when Fort Laramie was created or Fort William, they call it at the time, or Fort Hall over in Idaho, um, there would be a resident blacksmith there. And so mountain, could, mountain men could go there and get some of their metal work done. But, and so that's why we show it here, but it was not something that they were packing around with them all the time. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine that the blacksmith shop was very common except for, like you said, you know, and sometimes the, um, uh, the, there would be a blacksmith that come up with a supply caravan. So once a year up to coming up to rendezvous, this is a map that shows where all the rendezvous, there were 16 total rendezvous held in the mountains. Um, so there were six of them held right outside of Pinedale here. A couple more uh, held su- in the southern end of the Green River Valley. Uh, a couple of them held over on the Wind River and Papoja ri- uh, Rivers over in the Lander-Riverton area. Uh, and then there were four of them held down uh, in what's now Utah. So Cache Valley, which is near Logan now, and Bear Lake, the southern end of Bear Lake. And then a couple of them were held up in Pierre's Hole or what's now called Teton Valley in Idaho. 
And so, I have to wonder how they got the word out to all the mountain men that were beyond communication. I mean, Facebook wasn't there to say, show up in Jackson Hole at, at such and such well, a time. You, you, you talked earlier about how they traveled so much. They were sending runners all the time. When the supply caravan was coming up, they were sending runners ahead to go out and start trying to find people. And then word kind of spread. It wasn't one person that had to go find everybody. It's you tell somebody and then they run into somebody else and they tell somebody else and and it just eventually and and it got to where in the 1830s you can see all these ones that were held in Pinedale. There were six of the last eight were held right here outside of Pinedale. This became the favorite spot, and that's probably one of the reasons. It was easy to get the supplies here. It was centrally located for all the mountain men to come to. There was a great place for water, grass, and wood, which were the primary camp materials that they needed for thousands of people so you've got to have a lot of that around oh, yeah. i think they finally realized this is this is the prime spot this is the best spot for us so once that happened pretty much everybody knew that's where you go for rendezvous that's you need to go to the green river the where the horse creek meets the green river that was an easy marker for all of them to go to and these fur um, trading companies as they were coming out they had they they hired the people to be the runners to go find these yes. That's yeah. interesting. I, I had no idea that yeah. that was going on either. And, and even the, and, and most of these, the mountain men who were up here that were traveling, were traveling in brigades. You didn't travel around in three or four guys together because that's a good way to end up, at minimum, getting all your stuff stole, but maybe getting killed. And there was just a lot that was dangerous out here. So they traveled in brigades of 30 to 60 guys. And oh. even the free trappers traveled with those brigades for protection purposes. So it's not like there were guys that, you know, there was this group, the three and four guys, thousands of them all over the mountains. It was, you know, dozens of brigades around the mountains is, is what it amounted to. And so the brigades were sending out runners to go say, where's the supply caravan? Go Because they knew the route the supply caravan would bring. And so they would start heading out. And even competitors like the Rocky Mountain Fur Company would have their brigades and their supply caravans and the, and the American Fur Company would have their brigades and their supply caravans. They'd all to come together at the, at the rendezvous. Um, but you could run into one of your competitors. You know, if you're a Rocky Mountain Fur guy, you could run into American Fur Company wagon or supply caravan and they would probably tell you if they knew where rendezvous was. Now, I'd say probably because there was a little bit of deception out there. Oh, I'm um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of money involved and so... So people did what benefited them, but, um, but they would all come together at the rendezvous. One of the reasons the 1838 rendezvous was not held here in Pinedale was the Hudson Bay Company coming out of the Columbia River area was starting to come to the rendezvous and, and get into the trade, and the Americans didn't like it. And so they decided if we go across the Continental Divide, they can't follow us. They can't come to the rendezvous. Well, some mountain man, some brigade somewhere, found out the, the rendezvous had been moved to, to the Papogia. And so he put a note on a tree here and where the normal rendezvous would have been that says, hey, come to the Papogia. That's where the rendezvous <laughs> So the Hudson Bay guys get here and see the note says, come to the Papogia. And so, um, and so that's, that's what happened. And they, they, and they didn't let the international boundary of the Continental Divide stop them. They went over. They to went the, over. Yeah. Huh. All interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah, I had no idea that they were trying. I mean, the, the, the visual that you have of the mountain man from Hollywood and, and the such shows you the individual mountain man all by himself out in the middle of nowhere doing his thing. Yeah, you, just, didn't you just don't that. last that way. That what they and did I always do wondered how they did last. With, with the brigades, the brigades had camped together. And then during a day, they would send out groups of two or three guys to the different river branches around there. 
uh, streams and they would set traps and then would come back together in the evening. So there were times during the day when two or three guys were out by themselves and maybe even more than a day, maybe a two day, they'd camp at a spike camp or something, but that was unusual. So they were out there like that, but not for months at a time. Uh, you just couldn't survive without having people around you. Right. Cool. Yeah, that, yeah makes that, that makes all the sense in the yeah. world. Like I said, it kind of kind of gets rid of a myth that I've always had and, and makes more sense than the myth by a long shot. In this case, we're showing a lot of the Indian women presence. Um, Indian women were huge to the mountain men, not just from a, as companions and partners, but they made everything, you know, and this, this shows... This shows a lot of the stuff a, a typical Indian woman would have had, an Indian wife even, and it shows the quill work of how they how they decorated their outfits, and and the mountain men very much wanted their outfits decorated just like the uh, the the Indians did. That's beautiful. And when he's talking about quill work, you're talking about porcupine quills that have been uh, dyed or stained and flattened out and made into look like what we would visualizes a bead except it's more of a flat bead yep it's a it's a longer and longer thing and a beads are around round uh finite point where a quill is is a longer piece but that's what the traditional indians traditionally used was the beaver quill because that's what they had out but once the beads became available they just loved the beads they also right here we show the different colors of the quills those were naturally covered with pigments that were found in nature uh, that's a lot of work to color those. Um, once the bead came out, they have a hole in the middle. They're already colored. All you do is you got to sew them on. And so the, the Indian women just loved those. And especially beads like white and blue beads because those, it was hard to create natural white and natural blue out here in, in the mountains. And so that those were unique colors to them. Well, the beads probably reduced their workload tremendously because oh, yeah. it already had a hole in the center and they didn't have to flatten and, yep. and color. And, and they, they were probably more color fast. The, yeah, they the, lasted. The beads longer. would last a lot longer. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, you've got a wood carving here of Chief Washakie. And we did a, a podcast where we talked a little bit about the Wind River and the okay. Bighorn River and, and Hot Springs uh, State Park. And, and Washakie was the one that, that gave all of that to the uh, state. And they wanted to make sure that there was always free water. Uh, hot water for people to bathe in and stuff. So the state has always had to maintain that wow. state bathhouse uh, over there in Thermopolis in order to keep the water. But Chief Washington really cool. was the one that was instrumental in, in that deal. And, and he was big chief all the way through here. In fact, we've got a Washakie County and Riverton was the, the Shoshones there. He was their main chief, correct? Correct. Um, I, I, I'm not as up on Washington. Washington wasn't as prominent during the fur trade era. I think he was a chief, a leading chief as early as maybe 1825 to 1830, um, but towards the end of the fur trade era. So the, he wasn't the main chief that the mountain man dealt with, although the Shoshone Indians were probably the biggest partner of, of the, the mountain men that when they were up here and, and Washakie's tribe. Oh, and you've got a surveyors. Yeah, we just wanted to show the the mountain man came up here and explored all this area, but they really led. They were led by explorers like Lewis and Clark and Long and some of those guys. But uh, then they took over and explored most of the rest of the West and every inch of the West, really. Uh, but then along behind them came the the settlement sort of stuff and the surveyor surveying ground and 
and the government surveys documenting the resources out here. And so we wanted to show that that was a very important part of what the mountain men led to. And something you don't see real often, or I have not seen real often. I mean, you see the, the uh, transit and some of that, but the actual rods, everything's measured in rods. Yep. And they were, what, 20 feet long? Uh, I can't remember how long a rod was. 66 feet long. This is a chain. chain, Yep, a chain was 66 long, yeah. Yeah, and so 66 feet, and they would take that and put it on a a pole on one side and stretch that out. So they measured 66 feet everywhere they went. And it would take into consideration elevation. They tried to keep that chain as straight as possible. And yep. it's kind of a kind of a neat thing to see how the how the chains were set up for measuring a rod. Yep. And once they started surveying the west, that that was the primary tool. Yeah, you had to walk a lot. You did have to walk a lot. <laughs> and then you've got a, a saddle display here. Yeah, these are these are mountain man saddle, and so we show a typical pack saddle, an Indian saddle, a pack saddle. Uh, which are very simple saddles, but then we also have what we consider a mountain man saddle. There are no saddles in existence that we can point to from the mountain man. There are ones from that era, but not ones that we can say the mountain man used. There are some descriptions out there that describe them. So this is what we think a mountain man saddle would look like, and it's a lot different than a cowboy saddle we're used to. A lot less leather, a lot lighter, um, and and I, I think that's a surprise to people. When we think of a saddle, we just don't think of a, a lightweight saddle like this. But this is what the mountain man were. And it kind of looks like the McClellan that uh, Calvary Road, yep. uh, somewhat similar. And then you've got a, a horsehair horse pad or saddle pad that has actual long horsehair all over it. Yep. It's pretty, it's pretty yeah, neat. I, I don't know if the mountain man built saddle. They could have because they had a lot of horsehair around, but certainly... Uh, once the settlement started around here, horsehair blankets were very, very common. You had so much horsehair around, you could build a nice, a nice pad with that. And that's that's really interesting. I've never seen a horsehair pad like that either. <laughs> it, it's just it's horsehair. I mean, it's, it it's, it's long horsehair, like from the main. It's real horsehair. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's pretty. We did. The, we do have the beaver hat display over here. I don't know if you wanted to see that. Yes. This shows the shows all the way from the under fur, the soft fur of the beaver, which they call beaver wool. That's what was shaved off of the hide. And then it was started to mat together into a kind of a rough form and then just progressively made more and more like a, uh, a tall uh, beaver hat. Um, this, it, and white was the natural color when they were done, but that was not the choice of fashion back east and in Europe. They wanted black, so they dye them all black. And so the end there shows what, uh, a typical beaver head of that era would have looked like. That is really neat seeing the the mm-hmm. progression of, of how the hats worked here. Wow. Yeah, we, have a re- we have a report from 1841 of a reporter who visited a hat factory in 1841 in London. This illustration shows that, and there's several other illustrations with it, but that's how we know how they were making hats at the time. Although people make similar hats today. Uh, cowboy hats, the best cowboy hats today are made out of beaver. Beaver is the best still water tight uh, for water repellent fur to use. Yeah, even today. So are they raising these beavers in beaver farms or are they still trapping? They're still trapping. 
And so the market for beaver hide is still it's still high. out there. It's not enough that I think anybody can go make a living off of it. It, it seems to be supplemental income. There are probably traders who um, middlemen who who take the the beaver pelts pelts from the trappers and bring them all together, and and they may make a living out of it. But the trappers themselves don't. It's it's there's just not enough money in it. But but it's still and most beaver hats today. Or like a cowboy hat, you go buy a cowboy hat that says 10x or buy one that says 100x. It's supposed to reflect the more beaver, the higher the x, the more beaver. But there's no standard. So every hat company uses their own number. And people think 100x means 100% beaver. I'm not convinced it does. And I've never talked to one of the hat manufacturers. But I would be surprised. The amount of beaver it would take to make a beaver hat like that is is quite a bit. Um, To make a hat, even back in the day of of a... when these beaver top hats were were common to make a full hat out of that would probably take four beaver if it was all beaver but they didn't use all beaver they mixed in other cheaper like rabbit rabbit was very common uh just to make them cheaper but it still had enough of the beaver to to be water water repellent that was the whole purpose although this started becoming a fashion statement more than anything else (laughs) that's why things like silk hats were able to replace the beaver hat because silk hats look just like a beaver hat they didn't have all the nice qualities like repelling water and all that stuff. But I'm, I, it wouldn't surprise me if dandies of the day packed umbrellas with them because their hats couldn't be get wet. Um, it was more of a fashion statement. But we thing. see the same thing with the diamond industry and, you know, I mean, all yeah. the fake diamonds and, and all that kind of stuff, too, that people wear around. Yes, yeah, my big old diamond yeah. ring. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and you can see our dandy right here. We have a yeah. dandy. A mountain man wouldn't be caught dead looking like that. But that's 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 what the I hat. wouldn't be caught looking like that now either. <laughs> that's what the whole industry was supporting is people who wanted to look like that. Back east and in Europe. Pinstripe pants and the yeah. long coat and cane and yep. We do have a beaver coat here, so we got a coat and gloves and mitten all made out of full beaver. That would not have happened during the Mountain Man era because the, the pelts were way too valuable to send back. Um, but the, it is a very nice, it makes a very nice coat, very water repellent coat. This would have been made in the early settlement era, so early 1900s around here, late 1800s, uh, because it was a raw material that was around here and there wasn't a big market for the beaver and so they could afford to trap them and make a coat out of it. But um, We like to show that just because it shows the different use of, of beaver over time, how it changed. Cool. <clears throat> And then you've got a wildlife display. I noticed that uh, you had four ram heads over here. You got your, the Grand Slam. The Grand Slam. And yeah. The Grand Slam is, okay, you're going to have to help me with this. We've got the desert bighorn. We've got the bighorn sheep. We've got the doll bighorn. And we have the, let me see, we got the desert, the doll, the bighorn, and the. I don't know. We're going to have to go look. Know. You got to know. <laughs> Which one am I missing? The desert? The doll. We're missing one of them. When we get over there, we'll, we'll find we'll out. Have to, we'll have to figure out which one I'm forgetting. I always, I always can't remember one. It's a different one every time. But yeah. There's one you can't remember. There's one I can't remember. It seems like invariable. Yeah. The, the reason we show this is Mother Nature and the animals were a major part of the mountain man's lives. Any of the big game they would have shot to eat. Uh, although a lot of the hides, like antelope hides, were the most preferred for a shirt because it was very light. Deer hides were just kind of the utility. You would work for everything. 
Um, we don't have we get the buffalo was buffalo was the primary food source, right? <clears throat> but they used the hides also. But but things like the 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 grizzly bear that was their most feared animal. I I actually would suspect that the mountain man feared the grizzly more than they feared Indian and the Indian tribes, because the Indian tribes were at least predictable. They knew who was friendly. They knew who wasn't. They knew what they were going to do. They knew how they reacted. They they knew their tactics. That doesn't mean they weren't get in a battle with them, but they understood them. It was a known quantity. Grizzly was just so unknown. You you would walk or you would go around a corner. These guys are all down in stream bottoms trapping beaver in the willows. And that's where the beaver are that's where the grizzlies bears. are the grizzly bears are too. And so you could walk around a willow and and startle a mama grizzly and you're in trouble. And and many, many of these guys did. That's how Hugh Glass got got attacked and and the, the, the Hugh Glass story is really famous but just two weeks after Hugh Glass Jed Smith w- had the same thing happen to him and he was attacked by a grizzly instead of the guys leaving him though he had his whole health scalp tore off and one of his ears tore off but instead of his guys leaving him they took out needle and thread and sewed him up put him on a horse and they continued on wow. so wow. Uh, it was a very common occurrence we have one case that we like to show the mythic mountain man. We have the the Revenant poster in there, but these guys were mythic in their own times. People were talking about them, and dime novels were written about them in their own times. <clears throat> and and every generation since, we've been mythologizing these guys. And so, this case kind of shows that with with records about them, and comic books about them, and trade cards, and movies, and. Uh, dime novels, Adams. <clears throat> Grizzly Adams. <laughs> every every generation revisits the Mountain Man and makes it into what they want it to be at the time, and and it's been happening over and over and over. And I don't see any reason it will ever quit. No, it's it's a pretty iconic era. It is. It's a romantic era. We even have a woman trapper here. Yes, a female trapper mm-hmm. for the dime novel. The dime novels weren't always true. <laughs> <laughs> But they had a story. They had a story. And somebody would pay a dime for it. And then we've got over here. Yeah, please don't touch those things. So over here, we've got a Winchester collection. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, this is, not, this is not Mountain Man era, but it's just one of those uh, things that was donated to us. It's just such a, a great display uh, that we decided we had to have it. <clears throat> this is a Pinedale display. This is a Pinedale display. A gentleman display. from Pinedale had this collection. Yep. A man by the name of Vernon Delgado for over a 30-year period bought these commemorative Winchesters. Almost all of them are 30-30, but there's a few others. But all of them are, are engraved and dedicated to a different theme. And they would make one or two every year. And he would buy them and so created this incredible collection of over 100 guns. Uh, he bought so many guns from them that they ended up making a special issue Sublet County commemorative uh, Winchester wow. just for Vernon. And we have one of those here. There were only 10 of them made. And so when Vernon sold his bank and didn't have a place for these guns anymore, he let us have them. And so we're very grateful to have them. Yeah, beautiful. it's a beautiful display. Okay. We just came down into the basement. We walked past the sheep heads that we were trying to figure out, and the stone is the one that I'm missing. You have the stone sheep from the Yukon Territory in Alaska. You've got the dull sheep, which is from northern Alaska. You have the desert, which is really common down in 
uh, Arizona, Mexico area, and then the bighorn, which is common in the Rocky Mountain region. So that's your grand slam for sheep now that we've got that all straightened out. Down here in the basement, they've got more modern type history from Sublet County, which is where Pinedale's at. Uh, we will start covering some of that. Okay. Yeah, this is some of our new displays this year. We have a World War II outfit uh, uniform display. We do have some various guns from uh, Sublet County. One of the ones I like to point out is one that's claimed to be Butch Cassidy's pistol. Um, it's a 45 caliber Colt revolver. And um, we have a Mauser that was brought back from the world. We think World War I, um, but it might have been from World War II. And then you've got an old trunk and kind of a cool... Uh, we got a chair made out of a, a horse's pelvis. There we um, go. The guy's favorite horse died and he didn't want to let it go, so he built a chair out of it. So That's an interesting chair. <laughs> <laughs> and then just, you know, probably the our, one of our largest... We are the Suffolk County Historical Society, not just the Museum of the Mountain Man, and so we have a huge settlement era collection. And we try to show some of that stuff down here in this area. So we've got a lot of stuff from all the different decades of, of the subcounty. And this is heavy, heavy ranch area. Yep. This is settled, so, the settlement was with cattle industry. Very much so. In fact, is the Cattlemen's Association still going where they've got the, the cattle runway yep. going all the way up to Cora? Because they all do open range yeah, uh, they all have, through there. And then they do a big roundup every year and then separate all their cows out. Yeah, they have what's called the Green River Drift, and um, they've been doing that for more than a well since the 1880s, probably 1890s, where they took the cattle up into the forest to pasture during the summer, and then the cattle would naturally drift back down as the weather uh, changed, and and they would gather them all together and separate them into the different ranches and take them all out the, the ranches ranches. get together and yep. they do all of that gathering. It's and a, it, it's it, a it, big it, community thing. It is. It's it's the oldest and longest um, cattle drive. Uh, still happening in at least Wyoming, but probably in, in the West. Um, and just uh, three or four years ago, I can't remember exactly when um, it was listed, that the actual Green River Drift itself, the trail, was lifted, listed on the National Register of Historic Places as a traditional cultural property, meaning it represents the community, not just yes. was a historic uh, item. So uh, it's a pretty special uh feature of our current history, but it's been around for 130 years. Yeah, it was one of those things when I was here, every fall you'd see it for two weeks, you know, just constant work running them cattle to, to get them all separated and stuff. It was yeah. always fun to see. And then we entered this gallery here of Harry... William Henry Jackson. William, okay. And Jackson was one of the first photographers out into the West. Correct. And he documented Yellowstone. He documented documented the uh, Indian tribes, the way they were living, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, he started with the Hayden surveys. Hayden hired him to come out. One of the first trips they did was up in Yellowstone, and he took pictures in Yellowstone, and that's what lead, led to the creation of Yellowstone National Park. These photos are all original photos from 1871. They are the actual original prints from 1871. It's a process called Albert type. They're really rare. It was an expensive process at that time, but but uh, Hayden had it uh, commissioned and done. So these are real rare photos, original photos that uh, were used. These, not these particular photos, but copies like this were used to create and convince Congress to create Yellowstone National Park. 
because they didn't really believe what all was here when, when the mountain That's men correct. came back and told them what was going on and what was then called Coulter's Hell. It was just legend, yeah. They, they couldn't believe that there was smoking pots and, and hot water and geysers, and yeah. it, was, it was beyond their comprehension. And so these pictures helped out a lot with, uh, with preserving. Those them. and also Thomas Moran, the painter, went along, and so he created the color versions of those. Um, the, the two together really helped sell it. Yeah, this is a nice display. And this was all done with one of those old cameras that you see with yep, the a box camera. Box camera, yep. and you stand in behind the the little canvas cover behind you and get the quick flash, or or they, I guess it wasn't all that quick, and then kind of recorded onto a tintype. I yeah, think. well, no, they actually it was recorded onto um, glass plates. Glass so, plates. Yep. And yeah, quite the process. I, I can't even imagine carrying that sensitive equipment as far as what he did, because he not only documented Yellowstone, he was down in uh, Arizona and New Mexico and documented a lot of the uh, native life down there, too. Yep, seen... He went all over the West. He had an entire career. He lived to be almost 100 years old. I think he died in 99 years old. Really? Uh, but he had been all over the West photo doing photography. Wow. This is one thing I'd like to show. This is after the... After the mountain man came the immigrants, and the mountain man really led the way for the immigrants. Um, and later in the immigrant era, there was a trail built by a guy by the name of Frederick Lander, Lander yeah, Frederick Lander, and it was built from South Pass City to Fort Hall in, in uh, Idaho, and it was a shortcut on the Oregon Trail. It was built in 1858. Uh, in 1859, he came back and brought a young artist with him by the name of uh, Albert Bierstadt. And Bierstadt went on to paint what he saw out here and became a very famous American landscape painter. Um, but at the time, he brought a camera with him, and cameras were very new at the time. And he took these pictures. These two pictures right here are immigrants on the Lander Trail in 1859. We have the original glass wow. plates. We don't have those on display because they're fragile, but we got the original glass plates. And these, I'm convinced, are the earliest the, the the oldest surviving pictures of immigrants on an immigrant trail anywhere, wow. uh, certainly in the Rocky Mountains. And um, we know exactly where these were taken. We've identified the spots. They're here in the Green River Valley. And so those are some of our prized possessions. Oh, yeah. That is really nice. Hmm. This is an awesome museum. Have we seen Good. just about? Yep. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your time, Clint, for spending the day with us and taking us through this museum, telling us about what all you've got here. I want people to know that Pinedale is a place. It is a destination. <laughs> you need to come see Pinedale just because of what it is. And while you're here, you need to see the Museum of the Mountain Man. You, there's so much here to see, so much uh, history here, and an era that a lot of people don't know a lot about other than what they've seen on TV. It's easy to get to. Uh, you guys are open from 9 till 5 every day. Yep, every day in the summer. Every day May, through, summer. May through October. May through October. The entrance price was like $10, uh, so that's reasonable enough. And it's just it's, it's well worth the time, well worth the visit. And I really appreciate you taking your time today, taking us through here. Hopefully lots of people will come see.
and just enjoy what, what this area has to offer. Well, I appreciate you coming and showing what we got. We very much enjoy this history and I'd love to share it. So That's we'd love good. to have anybody come. Okay. Well, we'll cut it off and again, thank you very much. Oh, one more thing before we go. You guys have a website. That yes. Ha- do you have a gallery at your website? Just a website? We want people to come and see. That's the reason I'm not taking lots of pictures. Yep. I want them to come see what's here and experience it. But I want to give them a primer as yep. to what they're going to see and, and what to look for. Yeah, we have lots of pictures on our website. It's mmmuseum.com. mmmuseum.com. Correct. Cool. And so definitely hit that, the mmmuseum.com. You like can find mountain them. Man. Like Mountain Man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, not the M&M Museum. <laughs> I, I want to go see that one. Actually, I want to go taste test that one. <laughs> but, uh, uh I lost my train of thought. And <laughs> the museum. Yes. Oh, and you guys also, uh, if you just Google the Mountain Man Museum in Pinedale, yep. it will come up as, as the only place listed. Yep. And the website was easy to get a hold of you and, and all of that. It's, yeah, it's, it's, the only, it's the only museum in the country dedicated to the Rocky Mountain fur trade. And it's only one of two museums in the country dedicated to fur trade in general. The other is in Chadron, Nebraska, which I highly recommend you guys ever get a chance to go there we'll have to do that so thank you very much clint and have a great day today all right thank you thank you all the roll and go where am i to go meet johnny where am i to go for i'm a young and a sailor lad and where am i to go